Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Anno podcast, the death of the music industry as we know it. As per usual, we'd like to welcome all of our listeners to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Anno Podcast. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or via www.anchor.fm forward slash Anow. Growing at twice the national rate, accounting for one in eight businesses in the UK and worth over £100 billion a year, the creative sector stands on the precipice of collapse with no bailout on the cards. Within the realm of music, Glastonbury, the Royal Albert Hall and over 600 small music venues face closure. The lady is singing and the curtains are coming down. So why isn't the government doing anything to help? I'm joined this week by Ryan Jones, Rob Simpson, and Louise Martin. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Um, obviously, we have three wonderful people who've been slaving away in the music industry for you know years and years and years. Um, I thought just really quickly uh, for you guys to introduce yourselves to the listeners back at home. Um, Ryan, if we could start with you. Hey, my name's Ryan. I'm a musician, a songwriter. I work in education and play gigs around the southwest and uh, i've given up the white transit van and touring around the country with a rock and roll band for the folk venues playing acoustic guitar cool rob hi i'm rob simpson uh, md of a production company production manager and sound engineer and lou hi i'm louise martin i'm an event organizer and a programmer in cornwall with a background in marketing Awesome. So thanks thanks again for uh, agreeing to do this. I know the creative sector has been one of the you know main discussion points on social media and you know certainly in the conversations I've had obviously we all work in the creative sector and we've all seen the ramifications of government decisions in the UK as well as comparing it to other countries around the world. But I wanted to start off with talking about at the beginning of COVID-19 and the lockdown and how each of you prepared for it knowing you kind of knew it was coming as what what was the response like building up to knowing lockdown was coming and then what happened once lockdown came into effect maybe we could start with we'll go in the order we'll go Ryan Rob Lou and then we'll we'll see how the conversation develops from there well my response to lockdown was um probably not the right approach it reminded me i used to live at i used to share a house with a bunch of musicians and we once came home from a gig to find that our electric meter was down to three pence and we all went all right okay well we can handle a a night without electric it'll be fine and uh dax the guy in the back room filled the kettle up with water and started boiling it and going well in case the electric runs out we can all have a cup of tea and the lights went out i took a very similar (laughs) approach to uh to, to lockdown it's like panic buy music stuff quick so <laughs> i'd set up a, a home studios set up so that i could do some live streaming and recording and spent pretty much all the savings i had left on buying more musical equipment and then went ah, what about food <laughs> but on the on the flip side it's become quite useful now that i've changed my whole approach to be online and that my teaching methodology is all based around online platforms and um collaborating with other musicians doing some recording is all online so on the flip side it might not have been a crazy idea but there was definitely a degree of quick boil the kettle darkness is coming <laughs> with this my is, approach to lockdown and this is now a, a toolkit for songwriters and musicians to collaborate online 
well, yeah, that, that was further along down the process. After I realized I'd spent most of my money on buying music equipment that I probably wasn't going to use, I had to create a f- format which I could use it in. So I, uh, I built a couple of online collaborating, collaborative songwriting platforms, mainly aimed at young people in um, traumatic or difficult situations around the Southwest. So they had a, an arts-based outlet um, to work on. So I set up something called Kavrena Records, which means to share in Cornish, working with Cornwall Music Hub. Um, and I set up... Uh, Lonely Bird Records as well, working with Feast, which is a community-based thing. The idea is that you share your story and your narrative, and then a songwriter can develop that into lyrics and harmony and chord, and producers can develop. It's it's a a bouncing backwards and forwards platform for musicians to keep people from going crazy. And what's the engagement been like? The the youth one has been awesome. So Corona Records has been engaging with focus classes of kids that have been um, interested in music production and songwriting. And then there's been an organization called Rio, who are the Real Ideas organization, who have been sending students that they feel might have a, a positive emotional experience. They work with children in who are not engaged in education, training or employment. So these are kids that are slipping off the system and at this point when there's not much contact between tutors and trusted adults and these young people having some kind of engaged platform for songwriting, um, just to check up and see how they're doing on a week to week basis has been really useful. That's what I've spent my time doing. Brilliant. Um, so I know, I know it's been slightly, it's slightly different experience for Rob. Um, Yes. So, yeah. so Rob, just just tell us about you know the business and then kind of the personal uh, ramifications this has had for you. Well, from a business point of view, it was a bit of a light switch, or rather, light switching off moment. Really, um, pretty much was fairly instant in terms of the the consequence um, of, like I say, I think before we were chatting earlier, um, before this, that on the Friday when you know announcements were coming in that there was likely to be lockdown and you know in, in our minds we were coming in on Monday and we were kind of carrying on as per normal you know stiff up a lip and crack on and uh, it became abundantly clear by about 11am on the Monday morning after having taken my third or fourth cancellation for the for the day and you know by the end of that Monday me and two other of my colleagues in the office it, it yeah it, it became very clear that the end was nigh for the season and and it pretty much I would say that even within that first week probably 60% of our order book just just wiped wiped out you know so yeah so there wasn't much time for preparation and 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 usual normal strategies for business interruption were 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 not relevant uh, in this situation even even down to you know, our asset value, we are effectively, as a production company, a, a higher business where you, you hire sound systems, lights, whatever it may be. Um, there is value in that. And even the value of those assets have, have disappeared. You know, we'd, we're talking probably 25p on the pound in terms of the value of, of our investments. And and, and again, in, in, and investing came at a time where we are investing for the coming season, which, which meant obviously the immediate 
stopping putting the, the brakes on any any spending at all and yeah and it was a it was a, a harsh reality of one of which I've still not quite come to terms with if I'm honest so um, and yet yeah and a longer much longer recovery ahead for for this sector than than other sectors perhaps and you you guys furloughed the majority of your staff as well right pretty much immediately I mean the furlough is an absolute saviour there's no two ways about it we would be in a much much worse position than we are now without furlough this is this is where the fear comes for the coming coming months as as furlough ends and and how we're gonna get through that but so without without furlough we would be in major trouble but yes we we furloughed um 10 of our 14 guys effectively um are off and then ultimately even myself being on furlough for periods of time and doing anything we can to save as much money as possible, really. And then how about, how about for you, Luke? Because, again, you, you work, again, differently to both Rob and Ryan. Yeah, so um, I initially, when this all happened, it was the sort of panic mode because my busiest time of year sort of starts from April and then runs right through to the end of September. And I might have three weekends off during that time if I'm lucky, you know, in a good year. So most of my money is made during the summer and then in the winter we start booking again for festivals and that I have some work but not a lot and you sort of, you know, trickle over to the next year which is the same as a lot of, you know, events, anyone events, anything like that, you just, it's the same sort of thing. So um, I fell through a gap of not being able to get any help um, so I went and got a job with the NHS actually um, so that's what I've been doing for money Um what I've been doing for events is still I've got a bit of work and it's all it was all about you know going into a plan b if we couldn't hold the events like our first event was supposed to start in April and then our first sort of bigger event down here was supposed to be at the beginning of May so those events were immediately put into jeopardy and then it was sort of yeah the response to that was right we need to find new dates that everyone can do move the artist this that, and the other and then um so yeah it was a sort of a panic sort of situation in just trying to come up with a plan b um really so this is that's, that's a good uh, kind of overview of how this has impacted each of you individually and kind of gives a bit of a hint to your respective positions within the overall industry as well and um, before we were talking about the trickle down ramifications of lockdown and you know the the lack of support arguably from the from the government um how do you think how do you think the trickle down ramifications are how is it affecting festivals planning for the rest of the year and into the future and also on a more local level um what are what are the implications for local venues local musicians you know the future of the industry well we can't i would say we can't honestly know the answer because again with with timelines i would say um from the government support side of things obviously there's been some amazing support with through the furlough system, et cetera, the freelancer system. I mean, 75% of this industry or 70 odd percent of this industry are freelancers. So that was you know, a massive savior um, to a point. I think this is again, going back to the fact that this ends in October as other sectors kind of, you know, ramp back up and everybody, well, not everybody, but many, many people get to go back to work and, you know, at least they know they have a, time scale to work to etc i mean i think with this sector the big the big change will come at the end of furlough and what support if any the government extra support beyond the furlough the standard furlough scheme will really determine the shape of 
the creative sector over the next 12 to two years, 12 months to two years. So at the moment, this is, this is part of the problem that we, because we have no dates and I know it's not something that's easy. They can't, can't be a set in stone. We can go back to doing stadium shows by November. I know they can't do that, but some form of guidance or at least, I mean, they've released the, the five step roadmap to, you know, coming back and it, I mean, it's tantamount. It's, it's a waste of time basically. And so we need, we need to either know they're not going to help in which case we have to work towards the worst case scenario, which will mean there'll be mass, mass amounts of redundancies in this sector over the next two to four weeks, simply because as furlough it, it, it ends in October, but people are going to have to contribute to, the national insurances and pensions and, and then pay up to 60% of those people's salaries with, with really no prospect of actually coming back to work potentially until the earliest second quarter 21, then, then it's unsustainable. So therefore these people are going to be made redundant before even the end term of, of, of furlough simply because it's unaffordable. If you're if you're a much bigger company than my company, you know we, we're a company of between ten and fifteen people employ regularly employ maybe twenty freelancers maximum. You know, whereas I work directly with companies that employ one hundred and sixty people and work with three four hundred freelancers, mostly through the live sector. It, it, there's going to be there will have to be massive change and we're going to lose lots of people and lots of skills and and lots of passion will be gone from the industry and that's 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 one of my biggest fears at the moment one of the other things that's that's popped up has been the issue with insurance insurance companies um covering you know the fact that a lot of events have had to cancel a lot of parts of the industry are falling are falling at the wayside because insurance companies are are figuring out ways to not pay out. Again, I just wondered if you guys would touch on how those insurance companies have been operating, how they're trying to restructure the ways in which they identify clauses for payouts, and then the impact of the insurance companies may have on things like Glastonbury. Um, I know Rob, you mentioned uh, Hiscott's insurance as a as a case study, as an example of what they're up to. They may or may not be um, in the courts trying to avoid paying out on many policies as as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> possibly my own policy being one of them, or a, a very small part of, of one of our insurance policies. So again, we we we're not holding our breath. Um, it's, the insurance, unfortunately, is fundamental to to the realization of events. Generally speaking, you know, you you wouldn't put right now. Would you invest your million pounds, two million pounds, into an event that you don't know is even going to happen? You know, without insurance, it's there's and really, can you expect the insurance companies to 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 potentially foot the bills for? events not happening because again it's the lack of guidance and 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 to a degree i would say the government forcing insurance companies there was there was a bit of shenanigans early on where the government lent on the insurance companies and said no you guys you're going to have to pay out on these policies and that seems to have you know seems to have uh, frittered away and and probably due to again some stuff we were talking about earlier ryan where there's yeah. The implications of bringing down the insurance companies are, are far-reaching, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I'm far from an expert in 
the music industry, let alone insurance within the music industry. But um, my understanding is that insurance companies make their profits by having the liquidity to invest in other industries and making investments as many businesses do. And as soon as you recall all of the premiums from those insurance companies to cover something as far reaching as COVID-19's effects on business interruption, um, those insurance companies have to recall their shares and their funds in other investments within the global economy. And then that has a knock-on effect towards recessions and I guess as someone who's a lot more intelligent than me, um, formulating a strategy that means what is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. If insurance companies pull all of their far-reaching investments from everything from nefarious business interests to positive uh, organizations, do we see a house of cards falling within our economy? And is that worse than the rest of the businesses that are operating um, without insurance, not having the confidence to put on events, make investments, and um, move move their assets around. I mean, what you're talking about, and I know, I know, you said you're not an expert, but you know, to to simplify the equivalence of of people listening at home, it it sounds very similar to the 2008 crash and the structure of that said crash. Sure, the fact that the first the first book. Uh, wasn't paid out, and so it falls to the person who's got the second book, and so on. And that 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 effect, as it goes through the insurance system, basically leads to a collapse of an entire industry. And cool. in two thousand eight, it was a housing industry, which is a lot bigger, obviously, than the, the creative sector. But you're still talking about a hundred billion pound sector in the UK alone, let alone globally. Um, but we have seen other countries put in place support mechanisms. Like we were talking about France, you've done a 7 billion euro bailout fund and then also offered to pay freelancers a living wage up until the end of August next year. Um, 40 million straight into the music industry, instantly into the music industry as well, directly. And yet we're seeing, you know, the the owners of Glastonbury coming out in the newspapers this week. Again, Lou, I know you kind of think, did you share it on Facebook? I think I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, And just seeing, what's that like seeing that something that's arguably one of the biggest music festivals in the world stating that they will go out of business if they can't operate next year? heartbreaking for a lot of reasons for a lot of people you know it was supposed to the 50th anniversary that was this year you know that's just massive into what that's brought to the UK and as one of the biggest and most respected and loved festivals in the whole world you know just in little old Somerset you know it's absolutely massive and and they're not the only ones you know um, John Giddings from Isle of Wight Festival he's the same a lot of, there are, a lot of festivals can say they can probably hunker down for this year and be okay but you know if they cannot go ahead next year then what then that's going to be the end and it's the same for most I would think you know it's uh I think an economics um professor to understand that two years of non-trading of zero is going to result in the 
demise of said business. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, like I say, it costs about £40 million for Glastonbury on. They've got about 50 permanent staff working on that all year round. And yeah, of course, two two years of not trading, you know, one year of not trading is pretty substantially pretty terrible. But yeah, there's just no way things will carry on. So... Yeah, and it's the same with the smaller festivals and, you know, it's the same with everyone, I would think. You work with, like, Dunes and the Dunes and so on, and are those festivals going to be able to survive even this year? I mean, these the festivals that I work with, the Great Estate and the Orchard Festival, Tunes and Dunes, they're, you know, a lot smaller than the Glastonbury's and the Isle of Wight festivals, you know, they're sort of 5,000, 7,000 capacities, um, so a lot smaller. And, you know, our game plan for this year is to just move everything to next year, you know, um, try and move all the bands over so that the ticket holders are know that they're going to get what they were paying for in the first place. And, you know, this year... The festivals will, yeah, make it through. The punters have been pretty great, I think, on the whole, where there's been a bit of a movement not to just take your money out of the, you know, to not just get your ticket price back, to push it out to next year. You know, there's been, I know, events that have moved two or three times, you know, which is unprecedented. It's like, oh, we'll go to (laughs) September, and then it's, all May next year, or we'll actually... So, and, and I think the majority of people are supporting it, as in the, the, the punters, the 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 crowds are are supporting it and, and leaving that money in, which which is what's safeguarding and meaning that these festivals can continue. And businesses like mine are, and hopefully other businesses like mine are if you've paid us a deposit this year, then that, that deposit's valid for next year. And I know that's happening throughout the industry. So So existing ticket sales are basically the industry's insurance policy right now. For a lot of and certainly for, for touring apps that I'm working with, some some you would you would argue with major touring acts that that without the ability to kick it down the road as it were there would we would be seeing some some immediate major issues for for major artists that you know i, I think it, this is the perception of you know famous people artists coming cap in hand going we're in trouble it, it, it's hard to resonate with the general public it can be difficult but you've got to remember for every one band you know, five members of a band on stage that, you know, they may be rolling in dough, you know, but there's four or five hundred people working on that process that tiers of, of earnings, et cetera, right down to the to the lowest of lowest earnings to the minimum wage workers. And, and you know, that's just on the day. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, in the lead up to this, it's it's massive. And there's there's much more, many, many more people involved than than just the artists and you know so again it, and when you've got major major artists that that are really struggling even with the ability to push these sales into next year um you know they've paid out deposits and they actually these individuals can't draw down on the the ticket sales so they've they've spent out you know and and if you're talking an arena scale tour you could you could have spent 150 200,000 pounds before you've even left one of the things that a lot of people have asked me or have talked about has been the fact that pubs are reopening, right? With this one meter plus now distance rule. At what point could an outdoor festival take place? What What's feasible? Because it, there has to be a certain point in the expenditure of running a festival that you need to sell X amount of ticket sales in order to break even. From a production point of view, it's very. It would be incredibly difficult. So just think of it from an audio point of view. A, a scale of an event 
with a with a sound system, for instance, you're you're covering an area. So it's less about capacity. People often think, well, it, I need a PA for five thousand people, whereas actually you need a PA to cover an area where the five thousand people go. And if if that that five thousand capacity arena and you're down to a one by one meter in any direction, clearly you're going to reduce the capacity to a point where you're having to still invest in the same amount of coverage and the same level of production, but you're effectively reducing, completely reducing your potential revenue. In, in a sector, in small festivals, and as we know, small venues, where pre-coronavirus, this was a hard sector to survive in. It was a labor of love for a lot of people. This is obviously beyond a tipping point and, and not not feasible um, realistically in my opinion and not sustainable not to say that you can't it can't be done and that you could charge accordingly or whatever and whatever you've got to do to to get creative and get stuff happening I, I get it but for me it's it's about working towards getting back to those experiences it's all about experiences isn't it and people's you know life-changing moments like you're not going to have I'm sorry you're not going to have a life-changing epiphany musical moment sat you know behind 10 other cars is that's not what it's about it's about you know it's about getting in there isn't it and and and, and that whole visceral experience of, of being at a gig and that's that's why we all love and that's the, the passion in this industry is where it comes from it's the untangible element of what makes music primal you know and togetherness as well you know and that's it's the complete opposite of what you know the social distancing thing it's the togetherness and we you know as a festival like we can't put on a festival if social distancing measures are in place you can't put one you just can't do it until that changes and you know the, the public feel confident to come out and party again then it's not it's not possible financially and just for a lot of practical reasons you know I, again, going back to my original point, I think I think that people, once we're able to ramp this back up and we're able to have events, they will come running back. Of course, some people are not going to feel safe, and that's fine. You know, don't don't come. <laughs> but, yeah, but, I'm not talking about opening this back up um, immediately, but again, some sort of strategy and, and plan, and looking at the you know really looking at the numbers, um, and and. Yeah, formulating an actual meaningful meaningful roadmap to recovery. And, and on the local level, Ryan, because um, you, you were saying how you, you've landed a, a gig um, <laughs> of, of sorts. Back on the, back on the horse. Well, a, a potential booking came in for a, a private function at the end of September if the government guidelines allowed for it. But this is a booking for a covers set with two musicians playing nostalgic songs and i think the cutting edge kind of stuff that rob and lou work on with new music and building the infrastructure for the future of music and not just the future of music but the the identity of our country and that that self-esteem of our country a lot of it comes through the art that we create um and that now we're in a position where what is the mood and what is the narrative of the country? How how cohesive are we as a as a collective? And the Beatles were one part of the the psychology of the country, and the Rolling Stones were another part of the psychology of the country. And they had the space to express their their feelings and their emotions, and the freedom to do that. We're now in this divisive, insular situation where 
we're deconstructing this social narrative from the insular scenarios of our our isolation and what is that going to look like as an artistic expression over time and how does that manifest itself within the grassroots venues how do you take that and craft it as an A&R person for a record label and turn it into something that's tourable um how does an artist interpret it or do you just pretend this never happened and do you do you move on so I think I think the grassroots venues will come back from a what else do we do scenario if they haven't got bankrupt and they've got another revenue stream like for example a lot of the pubs that i play at primarily they're the eateries and they sell ale and as an addition to that because it fits the package they have someone who's got a beard and uh, acoustic guitar playing some folk songs um we're all in lou what are you gonna do you need a beard, man. Gonna grow a beard, yeah. Oh my gosh! I know. And, but but that that fits with a certain narrative of 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 nostalgia of mm. of some big Nick acoustic guitar playing, singing songs about the good times, whilst people drink ale in a packed pub, and it fits. But it's not going to work now because everyone's got perspex between them. There's a uh, a meter between the tables and you've got a pre-book and you've got to come in and there's going to be 20 people in that pub. I, I, I just think it's going to, without something else, some other avenue of artistic expression, it's going to peter out that the narrative is so mundane and boring that we're going to get a lot of Bon Iver-esque records coming out over the next few months <laughs> of lockdown, insulation and isolation. And, and how does that translate to the live stage and, one of the few things that Great Britain remains still great at is is music and the development of new music and the harboring of that talent and its acceleration into the global structure of the industry itself. It's it's our biggest export, and, you know, it's, and it's nuanced as well. It's not yeah. It's not just we've got we've got Ed, we've got Ed, man, and Adele, and Adele. What we just stand on their shoulders. It's it's the nuance of the whole thing that we've that those guys grew up listening to local artists playing in their pubs when they were twelve, and they went, oh, I quite fancy playing the guitar or singing a song about. And they built up their identities through a broad experience of music within our communities, and then they became something that fitted that narrative perfectly. But then they got to stand on the shoulders of people like Rob, who. I've watched behind a mixing desk and the amount of passion that is in Rob's outlook in, in sound design and sound, sound reinforcement and production is, is, is artistic that every, if, if everything is exactly right, Rob will still be pretty unhappy, but it's got to be absolutely perfect. <laughs> We've got an industry of people who make sure that everything is utterly perfect for that artist and Lou as well that you'll stay up until four o'clock in the morning checking spreadsheets to make sure that someone's catching the right train to get to the festival is going to get picked up and that all those people who who are irreplaceable are going to be lost if if we're not careful and that, that then then those starlight artists suddenly aren't so exciting anymore because 25% of the passion was coming from the team behind them and 10% of the identity was coming from their experiences growing up in our, our musical culture and 20% of their material came from 
ripping off other artists. <laughs> so they, suddenly, they're still good, but they're not nearly what they were without this industry supporting them. And there, there were warning signs pre-lockdown of this, especially on the, gra- on the grassroots level, you know, because we've seen a, a huge increase in the closing down of small venues. Yeah, the un- underinvestment in the grassroots music in this country has been chronically underinvested for, for almost 10 years. You know, and I don't like to drag names through, but when, you know, when the Arts Council basically dumped music as a concept, I went, ah, that'd be all right. <laughs> you know, they'd be fine. They're doing well on their own. You know, it kind of, that was kind of the beginning of, like, I think, again, we were talking earlier, the, the psychology and how the music particularly is is perceived by the general public in terms of this, you know, high rollers and, you know, must everyone's loaded and they'll be fine, you know. And it, that ties into that that whole idea that we'll be all right. They'll be all right on their own, you know. And yes, those those top one percent artists will be just fine through this. They, they they will be fine. It's the it's the grassroots that has been chronically underinvested historically anyway. And then this hits, and it's you know when a venue can barely barely exist at the best of times, how can they be expected to survive through this, you know? And that's why over 600 venues in Great Britain are, you know, at, at risk of closure in the next three to six months. You know, actually, this isn't a joke. This is real, you know. Um, there's an open letter to the government from the Music Venue Trust. It's signed by, I, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of venue managers from that are quite literally going, come look, I'll show you how, how in trouble we are. I think they're asking, the music venues just are asking for 50 million for a bailout for for venues that are immediately in massive amount of trouble in the next few months. And I remember seeing George Ezra play to about 25 people in Cafe Irie Newquay and Sam Fender and Ben Howard and all these people that have come through. They've come through because they've cut their teeth in these little venues, in these tiny little, like dark little venues where it, the power and the passion and the emotion of the crowd, the, the small amount of people that are watching them, you know, that translates into into you know a connection between the audience and the musician and the closeness of it all and without these little venues where are these bands going to come through how are they you know how are they going how are they supposed to go and sell tickets to the venue that's 600 people and then mm. 2000 people and then they're not going to do it so it's it's so important we have to keep these venues have to keep going and it shouldn't we shouldn't be relying on crowdfunding i think the louisiana did get they were however much money they got because the general public were like we cannot let this venue close its doors like and you know that's the government have to say this is this this is the history these are the roots of why our music is so great you know that was what makes part of us great is our music and our film and our theater is exceptional absolutely exceptional everyone that works in the industry and these little venues are the ones that are going to open the last because they might be 200 capacity and with you can't open with social distancing in place like there's no way you know like people with outdoor beer gardens yeah okay they're opening but with no entertainment what are they supposed to do and with no bailout at the moment like it's upsetting and just you know it's yeah and then we're not talking about in the scheme of things well it's something that irritates me regularly is is when people you know the cost of furlough and all the rest of it you know it, it pales into insignificance when talking about the 2008 bailout or a, 
a bailout or you know stupid projects like HS2, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. You know, people will argue the, the contrary that oh, your children will be the ones paying for this for the rest. You know, well, yeah, they're going to pay for it anyway somehow. <laughs> you know, so let's let's yeah try to try to sustain it. So when you know when we're all depressed in five years' time, at least we've got something still to listen and watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think that's been, I, I obviously come to it from a film perspective as well. And, you know, during lockdown, it's a very obvious comment to make, but what, what has everybody been doing? They've been listening to podcasts, they've been watching Netflix and Disney and listening to music. Even the BBC this week have been live streaming all of the historical Glastonbury sets. Yeah. You know, I don't think any artist is getting any money from that, you know, being broadcast again. Like it's all well and good for the nostalgia and again, pumping the chest of what Great Britain's good at, but it it doesn't actually serve any purpose apart from maybe a small boost in Spotify streams. Like a good friend of mine, he he gets over a million streams a month, but that's basically a a minimum wage. It's less than minimum wage. I think around 1,600 Spotify spins per per minimum wage hour. Yeah. I think. (laughs) <laughs> like it, so I think, and I think that's a really common misconception about people not in the industry who absorb music. They're paying for an access, ease of access to music, but it doesn't actually support the artist in the manner they think it does. It's the whole ecosystem of the industry that needs looking at. You know, needs some some help, and it's not we need to help it. Because it's by helping this sector, it's helping everybody. I don't understand. It's not rocket science, you know, but it is the whole ecosystem, right from, yeah, Ed Sheeran's crew, down down to your working restaurant, working musician. They're all the same that, you know, they're all working. There's 60 something thousand unemployed musicians in this country right now. We don't even treat it seriously. It's not even treated like it's a job. It's like it's a fun thing to do. Now, we all will enjoy it and absorb it and, and want to listen and, and consume music. But yeah, it's, it's deemed almost like, a, it's not second class, but you know what I'm getting at. It, it's almost not considered a proper job. That's the common, common thing that people say, isn't it? Why don't you go out and get a proper job? Whether you're a sort of up and coming actor or a musician, or it's just like you're doing it for a laugh. And yeah, it's so hand to mouth, the money that you get. And minus your expenses is... Um, it's crazy. Unlike places in like in Europe and a lot of places in Europe, they, you know, the arts are subsidized. And, you know, I go and work a festival in the Netherlands every September, and that's a festival that they put on in Maastricht for ten thousand people. It's free to attend. You know, that all the infrastructure's in and it's for families and they've got, you know, okay go playing, or they've got some really great bands playing, and it's all subsidized and the sponsorship and stuff like that. It's all done for free for the community because it's of such great social social benefit you know and community benefit and and it's just such so the arts are just so far reaching that the and and people like france for instance recognizes that you know they recognize these musicians and and how and you know filmmakers and theater makers and all this stuff it's so important for our culture and yeah for us in the uk to be sitting and watching all these people lose their livelihoods and where nothing is being done about it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's the wave that's going, that's an unstoppable wave. We, we've got about two. And when I say we, I mean the, the kind of the industry behind it, the supporting industries, the, the, the companies, 
the next two weeks, if we don't get word realistically in the next two weeks, we're, we're going to see the biggest reduction in workforce ever. Bear in mind that, that this sector, again, it's not, it's, it's was the fastest growing sector in the UK 2017. It's, it, it still continues to be one of the biggest sectors and one of the fastest growing sectors in the UK. You know, we've identified the fact that there's been issues in the industry long before lockdown, COVID-19 happened. Um, and looking at how other countries have put in place a, a bailout of sorts, you know, support system, such as France and Germany and, and so on. Heck, even Ireland threw in 20 million euro. Even Madagascar. <laughs> yeah, even, even even Madagascar. They got something like seven million or something for Madagascar. I can't remember. I don't. Some I can't remember the exact figure, but yeah, Madagascar has got the bailout. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't. We we all need help. You know, that's the point. Oh, absolutely. So, if a bailout was to happen, what does it need to include, and how can it be used to shift from this idea of going back to normal, but rather? Normal wasn't really working for this industry anyway. What what should be the new normal? How can a bailout reset the structure of this industry? I suppose it's quite an interesting point, quite an interesting way to look at it as a bit of a reset switch. Is it a, is it a great opportunity to actually have a total reform, as you know, and and build a new and a new you know stronger foundation for grassroots music and therefore the whole industry in general going forward. You know, it could be a great opportunity. I don't think that it will be perceived as as such. And I don't think that people have got the, and when I say people, I mean people in government have got the energy right now to get behind some reinvigoration of the, from grassroots up, which is the way it should be done. You know, the trickle up effect would be, would be wonderful. I mean, I think that probably the best case we, from an industry point of view would would hope for would be an extension to the furlough scheme for employed and freelance obviously again being 70 plus percent freelance their entire income is going to uh, disappear the, the pretty immediate support for these sectors or the affected sectors in furlough scheme would be a massive massive step you know even if they said look okay we're looking at you know, ramping up major scale tours by March, April 21, which is what people are kind of working towards at the moment. There's, they kind of, it keeps changing a little bit, but the general kind of narrative in the industry at the moment is we'll be back touring, you know, March, April, May, hopefully 21. So we need to get to that point, you know, before, for instance, I've got guys that were booked on a tour, a crew booked to go out on a tour that obviously got cancelled. That tour is still happening. I'd like to be able to take those same people and say to them, look, we're going to be doing this X, Y, and Z, and you've got the job and all the rest of it, but that's not going to help if they are literally going to die of starvation in between now and then, because we can't pay them, you know, support them as an organization because we're having our own difficulties and struggles and trying to survive ourselves, you know, and the artists are struggling. You know, we're even talking for, for acts that, that retain their crew, for instance, that retain their bands on and it may it may not be giant sums of money but they might be on a thousand pound a month retainer that's still having to be paid for until god knows when so what do you do you know as a business you're forced to effectively you know you'd have to let that those band members go and does that mean that when you come back on have they had to go and do something else or have you lost your drummer have you lost your sound engineer have you you know this this is the this is the point and without immediate and i mean immediate like really seriously in the next 
week, but maximum two weeks, that, that the wheels are really going to come off for almost everybody in the in the creative sector. I can't see it going any other way. And what about from your perspective, Lou, in terms of, you know, bailouts and, you know, we're talking about 600 small venues due to close, these festivals requiring, you know, some support at least to next year or in, ne- in the next year. The only thing that the festivals, you know, are entitled to at the moment is to take out some pretty, you know, hefty loans, uh, which they are obviously going to have to pay back. That's about the only thing that they can go for. There's no other help. So, yes, a bailout for the creative industries, for these grassroots venues, for, you know, struggling festivals, but but across, you know, across theatre and film and everything as well, because, um, and also... um, an actual timeline to go along with these stages of the five stage plan that's come out because stage three is performances outdoors with an audience. That's what stage three is. We're apparently in stage two at the moment where there's performances being done for broadcast and stuff, but, but there's no timeline to go along with this. So it's very difficult to plan ahead, you know, so that put a scupper to anything we were planning that we were going to try and do with socially distancing measures in place. We need the furlough to carry on for any for industries that can't start work. Otherwise, everyone's going to have to start laying off their staff. And we need the self-employment income support scheme to cover more people. And and for the people that it's forgotten that, you know, newly self-employed people as well. There's a lot of people that have fallen through the gaps. And then Ryan, for you, you know, you've you've definitely managed to use lockdown as a as a mechanism, a support mechanism, looking at a bailout. How do you think that could also impact, you know, your realm of the industry? You know, how how can this be utilized? I mean, the biggest loss would be those highly skilled individuals that allow us to put on the major events that are going to go into different industries because they're going to be laid off and they're going to have to find new avenues of making money. We need to retain them. But at the same time, we need to re-engage audiences in coming up with the events that they want to be a part of. And we need to bring up the the new musicians of um, of this generation that are missing out on their run of pub gigs because there are none to play. So perhaps the Arts Council needs to be positioned to fund organisations like Rob's and individuals like Louise to act as a kind of artist development intermediary between the artists and the audiences out there and creating events, but also online content for artists that could at least tide them over until this whole thing is has rolled over. Looking at education as well, but that legacy that's passed on from generation to generation and the nostalgia, if there's an interruption of two, three, four years, does that legacy stop? Do the the twelve year olds of now suddenly stop being inspired by those events? And when they turn 16, 17, are they going to go, you know, I'm going to do an IT course or I'm going to look at another industry. I used to really like music, but they didn't have those formative experiences throughout the last four or five years. And suddenly we have a dead stop and we've got less people going into sound engineering and and systems designs, less people doing a songwriting degree or going to go on a songwriting retreat in order to develop their skills. And being exposed to it, you're, you're not being inspired, are you? Exactly. So are we sticking a bump in the road for what could relatively be quite a short-term investment? Are we doing a dead stop? Are we creating a dead stop for 
six years time, five years time when the hump that is the next two years disengages a whole generation of young people who would otherwise have moved into the creative sector. And maybe that never restarts. Maybe mm. that's the, that's the, that's the danger without the oversight of organizations down here, like people like cultivator, um, arts council feast who have contact with both infrastructure um, and industry for audience and artists and people to go, well, what can we do? How can we do it? Finances, and we'll create these initiatives and we'll get this funding out there and we'll engage the infrastructure that needs to be sustained into next year and beyond in delivering something that might be different to what they're used to delivering, but still is relevant and fundable. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about recovery and sustainability. Yeah, and diversification. Imagine life without film or without theatre or without music. Imagine if they're, you know, couldn't you imagine life without any of that stuff? Like Rob said, that we're even having this discussion that we need some help and we need a bailout. Well, you know, do do they want to say goodbye to £100 billion to the economy? Probably not. And, you know, so why are we in this situation where everyone's just really begging for help? To be honest with you, at this point, I would take knowing that nothing's coming and that we're on our own and that we're never able to do a gig again, you know. So at least we can make decisions, informed decisions, you know, and that's, that's it's again, in, it just follows the, the narrative of how the government have handled this situation in the UK throughout the whole process, where it's, it's very political reactions, isn't it, rather than actual strategy and actually sitting down with people and actually looking at, facts and data and and then interpreting that data sit down with people that that understand how the events sector works be it theater be it open air cinema be it festivals you know sit down with these people you've got the royal albert hall in danger of having to close its doors i mean come on you can't tell me that the 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 british government aren't going to step in and go hang on we can't let that happen obviously one of the things that we've all been sharing and and rob i i heard from about it from you initially online is the hashtag we make events and this kind of campaign that's going around at the moment and that kind of inspired this this actual conversation what what is it about what is it for and what is it hoping to achieve so it's it's basically it's a it's a campaign put together by uh, industry body plaza um professional lighting and sound association so it's about kind of helping people understand the full ecosystem and the fact that it's not just your giant you know multi-million pound artists there is everybody and you know it's about those you know 500,000 plus people that work in this sector and exposing their plight it's across every social platform uh, i think anybody listening to this episode if they wanted to learn more about everything that's going on just following that hashtag across social media hashtag we make events is a really good starting point it provides you some decent insight into the ramifications of what's going on with there's everybody. A video, there's a video on YouTube. If you go to Plaza um, Plaza's uh, YouTube channel, and there's a kind of a six-minute uh, video. I'll certainly put a link, the YouTube link to that video, in the episode description, so people can go down and and check that video out directly from the podcast links. Um. But I will end by just saying thank you to Ryan, Rob and Lou for sharing your woes, your hopes and your dreams. <laughs> and uh, hopefully, hopefully something will happen in the coming weeks. 
This week's episode of Ah Now was produced by S2S Media.